before we get started, uh, let's bow in a quick word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us all here tonight and just the opportunity we have to gather as a church family to sing praises to you and, and to look at your word. And I pray that as we open the scriptures tonight that your Holy Spirit would illuminate for us the passages that we're going to look at, that you'd prepare hearts to receive, and uh, you would prepare the uh, person bringing the message to uh, preach well. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight uh, I'm going to be looking at selected scriptures from the book of First John. Uh, you could title this message, Fruit of Genuine Conversion. Just an overview of some criteria that uh, the Apostle John points out in this epistle. What constitutes genuine saving faith? Uh, the look at this book we're going to take is by no means exhaustive and probably not even all the criteria he lists about what constitutes genuine conversion is going to be discussed here tonight. I think that if you were going to do a really, really deep dive into this epistle, it would probably take you close to a year if you were really going to mine the depths. Uh, but tonight we're just going to do an overview. A um, little bit of background on this book. It was one of the last books of the Bible written. Uh, a lot of scholars believe it was written between the years of 90 and 95 AD. That would be in the first century likely written from Ephesus to the churches in Asia Minor. It was a general epistle. Um, at this point, uh, John is the sole remaining apostolic survivor. He's like the last living apostle that actually was with Christ physically during Christ's earthly incarnation. He witnessed the key events, Christ's earthly ministry, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection and ascension. A lot of biblical scholars believe that this was written uh, by John as a way to combat Gnosticism, uh, which had been a popular heresy that was kind of floating around out there in that area of the world. The legalistic teachings of the Judaizers kind of waned in popularity by this time. It kind of fallen out of favor. I think the church in that day probably had most likely won the battle against it, but if you know anything about Satan, he can always come up with another heresy. He's got endless heresies. So uh, Gnosticism was kind of the new big false teaching that was on the scene by this time. Um, it's a kind of dualism, Gnosticism, if you don't know much about it. Um, basically asserts that matter is evil um, and spirit is good. And um, a lot of these false teachers back in this day would take that position and they would even deny that Jesus had actually come in the flesh because they wanted to preserve him from evil. Um, Gnosticism was also a kind of secret knowledge type of approach to religious beliefs. You know, only the initiated can really know the deeper things. Um, it's even higher than Scripture. Um, if you want to know what would be a modern-day version of Gnosticism, since uh, there's a couple of Lebanese people here, they'll, they'll appreciate this. Uh, there's a religion called the Druze religion. It's D-R-U-Z-E. Look it up on the Internet. That would be a modern form of Gnosticism, if you ask me. A type of religion where most people that practice it don't even know much about what their 
religion practices, secret knowledge. Uh, you know, Gnostics say that Jesus' physical body was not real. It was only an illusion. Of course, John's going to be in a great position to refute that because he was an actual eyewitness who was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I mean, you think about it, he could probably speak more authoritatively about the physical incarnation of Christ than Paul could. Um, so I think that uh, John's authority would be uh, unquestioned in that area. And because Gnosticism said that matter was evil and only spirit was good, um, there was also a kind of teaching called asceticism, you know, where the body had to be treated very harshly, you know, a practice of uh, not allowing for any pleasure or comfort because it's evil. Um, or it could go to the other extreme where basically you take the attitude that well, you know, the soul might belong to God, but the flesh belongs to us. Uh, and because the body has no connection to the spirit, we can pretty much do what we want. We can indulge in all kinds of sensual pleasures um, because it's the physical body and it's separate from the, from the spiritual. So in combating this, uh, John, as you'll see in this epistle, he's going to list some criteria that's indicative of genuine conversion uh, much of the criteria he talks about in this epistle is actually the opposite of what a lot of the false teachers were in this day. A lot of the false teachers went in for the money, sexual favors, weren't really loving. Uh, exactly the opposite of what uh, John would say here constitutes genuine saving faith. Um, needless to say, they don't keep the commandments these false teachers. So if you'll humor me a little bit, um, we don't normally do this in church. Uh, but I actually want to read the entire epistle of 1 John to start with, just to give us some context, because we're going to be jumping around in it. Um, and as I read, see if you can pick out some of the criteria or fruit of genuine conversion that he lists. And then after that, we're going to look at some selected scriptures. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start here in verse 1. And it starts off, What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, 
but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him by the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things... I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and as such we are. 
For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother." For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know that by this, that he abides in us, and by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. Now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and believe the love of God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this, All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. 
We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. So we made it. Thank you for humoring me, but I think you have a lot of context now about where we're going. And again, I'm not going to unpack every single verse in this book. Um, You probably won't get a reading like that in service again for a while, so savor it. Um, You can see here that some of the criteria that you might automatically pick out is that it's not enough just to know correct doctrine that is important, but uh, there's also uh, involved in this Christian life of ours living a life of holiness and loving others. Now, the first thing that really jumps out at me here is uh, that passage out of 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Um, you know, confess Jesus as Lord. I guess I would put that as the first uh, evidence, piece of evidence of genuine conversion. Um, one has to have the right view of Christ, and one has to be truly converted, obviously. Um, again, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So when we talk about Antichrist in this context, we're not talking about the Antichrist, Antichrist. Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Um, Again, it's not the one world ruler. It's anybody that teaches heresy concerning Jesus is considered Antichrist. That person is a liar. Um, It's impossible to have the Father without the Son. If you have the Son, you have the Father also. If you deny the Son, essentially you're denying God himself. And if you know anything about false religions, this is the one thing that ties them all together, and it's a common theme. They either distort the person of Christ or they deny the person of Christ altogether. And like I said at the beginning, Satan has come up with several different perversions of Christ. I certainly couldn't name them all from this platform. And they manifest themselves in countless religious systems, too many to name. Another key uh, verse in there about confessing uh, Jesus as Lord, uh, 1 John 3.23, which states, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So the part about love, we're going to come back and focus on that later, loving others. But notice we are commanded to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Um, If you read the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, it says that the work that God requires of us is to believe in him who he has sent, meaning Jesus. Uh, Acts 16.31 calls us to believe and you'll be saved. Uh, John 3.18 makes it very clear that those who fail to believe are condemned already. Um, So all this means is you've got to have a right view of Christ. And to agree with what Scripture says about our condition and Christ's provision. To believe in him as both Savior and Lord. And it's about trusting him fully. 
for our salvation. Now you'll notice here, if you look in verse uh, 1 and 2 of 1 John chapter 4, um, there's actually a specific doctrinal imperative here. If you'll notice, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So basically this spells out a doctrinal imperative. This is not negotiable. This is not a secondary issue. If you don't believe Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you don't have the gospel. If there was ever a hill to die on for any church, this would be one of those hills to die on. Because if you distort this, you're distorting the person of Christ. And um, false teachers, the one thing is that they're all produced by demonic spirits. The deception of Mormonism or any other perverted gospel, it's all from Satan himself, all of it. Um, These teachers are always going to deny the humanity of Christ. They'll always deny it. Or if they don't deny it outright, they'll distort it. Uh, The Mormons might say, yeah, Jesus Christ came in the flesh, but it wasn't a virgin birth. And oh, by the way, he had two wives. As believers, we're not to be spiritually gullible. I think this is a warning for us. Um, Always discern that which is true and that which is false. Um, I would call on everybody in this room and in the wider Bethany family to have a healthy skepticism of any so-called new teaching in the church, no matter how popular it might be, of which evangelicalism today is full of. Um, It's pretty sad, but sometimes the most dangerous place to be is actually in your Christian bookstore or on your Christian bookstore website. Um, Be on guard about what you hear on the radio and in the church. Always, always test it against the Bible. Follow the example of the Bereans. Remember when Paul went to teach the Bereans in Acts 17, verses 11 and 12? They didn't just believe everything Paul said because he was Paul. Uh, They had a healthy skepticism of him, and it proved to be advantageous to them. They checked everything against the scriptures. And the other interesting part about that is that many actually came to faith because of that, because of their devotion to checking the scriptures to seeing if these things were true. Uh, There are a lot of other places in scripture, by the way, that point to his humanity. I could name a few, Matthew 118. Uh, clearly states he's born of a virgin. Uh, John 1.14 uh, mentions how the word became flesh. Uh, Luke 2.52 talks about how he increased in wisdom and stature as he was growing up in his earthly form. Uh, Matthew 4.2 talks about how he hungers. He thirsted, he slept, he had all the human attributes, yet he was without sin. And if you look further in chapter 4, verse 15... Uh, He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Um, Another specific non-negotiable doctrine. We talked about the humanity. You also have to believe the deity. And scripture is full of references to his deity. John 3.16, John 3.31, Philippians 2.6. I would encourage you to go back and try to find all the scriptures in the New Testament that speak of his deity. So we have the doctrinal part down, and that's all well and good, but uh, you know, you've also got to confess and have your sins forgiven, which is another uh, criteria that you need that constitutes genuine conversion. 
And I'm going to be jumping back to chapter 1. And you remember in chapter 1 of 1 John, we had looked at verses uh, 8 through 10, where it says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And the false teachers in John's day and maybe even some in our day always denied the existence of sin or they claimed to be sinless, of which neither one is possible according to Scripture. One can't be saved and say, well, now I'm not a sinner um, because that just isn't possible this side of heaven. This was the rich young ruler's problem is that he clearly was unregenerate in Matthew 19. He refused to acknowledge his own sin. Um, he just couldn't make that jump and you know, give up everything and follow Christ and admit that he was a sinner. If anybody refuses to acknowledge their own sin, you know, they're only deceiving themselves. And uh, yes, confession of sin is done to receive salvation. Um, and that initial forgiveness of sin that one receives at the moment of their conversion. But it's also an attitude that one maintains throughout their whole life. As I said before, no one will ever be completely sinless this side of heaven. But that's, that, that doesn't mean that somehow now confession is some type of legalistic exercise where you have to keep a record of every single sin ever committed. And if you forget to confess one specific sin... You know, there's no hope for you. Um, it speaks more of an attitude of that continual repentance, a continued posture of confession and acknowledgement of dependence upon God for forgiveness. That's why I loved what we did this past Sunday during the Lord's Table, uh, where we just had the piano playing. And I think it gave a lot of us a chance to maybe go before God and just confess our dependence on Him confess that we're sinners, that we're in need of his divine mercy and grace every single day. To be in a pattern of continued unrepentant sin is not the mark of a true Christian. And to say that you've not sinned, again, that's to call God a liar and contradict what his word says about you because uh, Romans 3.23 clearly states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Isaiah 53, 6 says that all have gone astray. So you've got your correct doctrine, you've confessed you're a sinner, you've asked for forgiveness, but true repentance is always accompanied by obedience. And in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5, it says again, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So it's not the obedience that saves you. And I think that that is a very common misconception and what a lot of people don't understand about the gospel. Um, obedience to the commandments is not what saves you. Um, but Doing so, having that obedience is evidence of genuine conversion. It's an outflow of your new life in Christ. Uh, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love him, you'll obey what he commands. 
And again, this obedience is not some kind of a legal obligation. It's done out of love because you truly love Christ. It's a love relationship. Love always delights in doing God's will. And if you love God and you keep his commandments and you're converted and you have fellowship with him, you can be assured that you're, you're, can, you're saved. And commandments, you might think, well, that's only dealing with the Ten Commandments. If I keep what's listed in Exodus, check, 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 I'm fine. But it's so much more than that. It's also other matters in the body of Christ. Uh, bearing one another's burdens is a command in Galatians 6.2. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean continuously praying 24 hours a day, but having that attitude of constant prayer. Uh, which also is a, another signal of our dependence upon God. Um, not being anxious. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands us not to worry. And uh, lip service to God doesn't do it. Praying that one-time prayer that you had during an emotional experience at a, at a revival meeting does not provide evidence of salvation. It must be evident in how you live. True repentance is always accompanied by obedience. And then if you look back in uh, 1 John 3, verses 22 and 24, verse 22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So you'll notice here a direct connection between answered prayer and obeying his commandments. Um, There is blessing in submitting to God and obeying his commandments. It's an evidence of, of, of him abiding in us and we in him. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through the Holy Spirit whom he's given. This is that helper that Jesus uh, promised to send, if you remember back in the Gospel of John. And then you skip ahead to uh, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 of 1 John. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So by loving other believers, we love God, and loving God is keeping his commandments, and one of his commandments is to love the children of God, hence our fellow believers. And Romans uh, 13.9 is a kind of an interesting verse that I, I picked out in my study. Um, you can see here, there's a, some criteria Paul lists when he's talking about loving his neighbor. He says, and he's quoting the Ten Commandments here, he says, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in this verse, Paul's telling us to love our neighbor, don't violate the commandments dealing with human relationships, of which Paul is mentioning four here. And if we're commanded even to love our neighbor, who may or may not be saved, how much more ought we to love the children of God? And then you remember back in the Gospel of John, uh, that would be chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, 
we have that. And also, if you notice in verse 3, these uh, commandments are not supposed to be burdensome. And they're not burdensome, especially if you remember and know the man-made religious traditions that the Pharisee foisted upon the people. Um, This truly regenerate heart that one has if they're in Christ has the desire, again, to obey God's commandments out of love. Obeying God's commandments bring the believer great joy and freedom. Love for God, make the commandments light. You, you want to do it. You love, you love God so much, just like if you love your spouse. It, it's, it's not a burden to want to serve them, to want to do things for them, because there's that love relationship there. And Psalm 119.97 really should be the prayer of all of us in this room. Um, it, it's a very short verse. It just says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Uh, this is a, 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 a psalmist here who's talking about how much he loves the commandments. It's his meditation all day. We all should love his law and always meditate upon it. Practicing righteousness is another fruit of genuine conversion. Jumping back again to 1 John 1, 6. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Uh, So those who walk in the darkness are not walking in the light no matter what they say. Talk is cheap. Mental assent to facts about who Christ is. One-time decisions are not evidence of true conversion. And John is blunt here. If you see, he just basically says, you're a liar. I mean, I don't know how much more blunt you can get than that. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Uh, To be truly converted mean you must make a clean break with idolatry and the sins of the flesh. As believers, we are called to be different. And it's interesting here. uh, Paul talks about this uh, in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He kind of expands upon that concept a little bit when he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So you can see here that you can't have it both ways. Light and darkness have no fellowship. Um, so you don't want to be yoked with unbelievers. That, that's, that's what else this uh, verse is talking about. You don't want to align yourself with the world, with worldly attitudes, with worldly actions, and call yourself a Christian. To do so is damaging to the body of Christ and distorts the gospel and basically makes the gospel look like a joke, look like something powerless that can't save anybody. That's why it is so, so important to be careful who you get close to, who you align yourself with in spiritual enterprises and with the young people of our church, um, why it is so important to encourage our young people not to marry unbelievers. I don't know how many times I've seen that in my own life with people I've known. Um, they have a son or a daughter, and um, to seal the deal, either the prospective son-in-law or the prospective daughter will just say all the right things because they want to get married. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I'm spiritual. All of that. Um, and the parents just take them at their word, you know, okay, here's lip service, and they don't take a deeper uh, look and really question that prospective spouse for their child regarding his or her faith. That's why it's important to do that. Uh, Another fruit of genuine conversion is to walk as Jesus walked. 
going back again to that first chapter of 1 John, uh, verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So to walk in light is to reflect God's perfection in our humanity. You're combining correct doctrine with moral purity. And we don't bring God down to our level, we rise to his level. Um, And we ought to be known as Christians as having a life that is known by righteous living and righteous thinking. Um, The unconverted are perverted in both their worldview and the way they live. It has Worldview can mean the way they might view specific issues, the way they might view human nature, the way they live, what sins they partake in. And God has empowered us through the finished work of Christ to share in the inheritance made possible by the new covenant. If you're a Christian, you're not in that life anymore. You've been rescued from Satan's kingdom and the power of sin. You've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. You have redemption, forgiveness, of sins and ultimately eternal fellowship with Christ. Now, the cleansing that this verse refers to is not to say that you have to be perfect. Because remember what we read in verses 8 through 10. Um, we're still sinners. We, need, we still need to maintain that continual posture of confession. But it also doesn't mean that if we commit sin, we've somehow lost our salvation. That would not be the case at all. However, unbroken, unrepentant sinfulness shouldn't characterize anybody who claims the name of Christ. And how do you stay in the light? How do you keep yourself from wrong thinking and wrong living? Um, Regular times in the Word, prayer, fellowship, and admonishment and encouragement from your fellow believers here in the body of Christ. And it's interesting how... um, This verse not only talks about how we enjoy fellowship with him, but we enjoy fellowship with other believers. And on that note, love for fellow believers is also another fruit of genuine conversion. Uh, 1 John 3, verses 10 to 18. Again, I read that. I'll uh, read it again. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So we read that passage, but it still bears reading again. Repetitive is always a good thing. The more you read a passage, the more it sinks in. It's interesting, uh, as I was studying on that note, um, for Christmas, or was it my birthday, uh, I I was given a Bible with four different Bible versions all in a row. And as I was beginning my study here, it was so great to just read it 
and then read it again and then read it again. And you see all the nuances of the text and that repetitiveness. Really, you get a feel for the book. And so I just thought I'd add that in there. So as you can see here, love for the brethren is a mark of true conversion. You'll notice that love has always been central to the gospel and is central to our new nature in Christ. And remember, uh, Matthew 7.16, Jesus said that you'll recognize them by their fruits. And love is not an option, and uh, it's most certainly a command. And it's interesting how he brings up Cain here. Uh, the Cain and Abel story, I think we ought to look at that because that is a great case study in loving your brother and keeping commandments. So uh, Genesis 4, verses 3 through 8, if you'll turn there, I think that we need to unpack that a little bit. Starting in verse 3 of Genesis 4, it says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So Cain here is obviously not following the command to love the brothers, love fellow believers. He, Cain is an interesting example here. He, he, he definitely is a great example of an unregenerate person. First, rather than worship God in the way that God commands, he decides he's just going to worship as he sees fit. He has no regard for what God commands. He only wants to do what he wants to do. And it's interesting, not only was Cain's behavior ungodly in that he acted without God in mind, He was unrighteous in that he actually was angry at God instead of being repentant for his sin. And if that wasn't enough, the sin turned to hostility. He was so angry it turned to hostility toward his brother, which culminated in Abel's murder. So it's almost like he's he's, he's like building a rap sheet just in these first few verses. He, He doesn't obey God's commands. He doesn't love his brother what he's, which is, to which he's commanded. So here, what do we have? We, he's guilty basically of unlawful worship and murder right there. There's two strikes against him. We need to worship God in the way that he demands to be worshipped, and we need to have love for one another. And an act of worship is, is following his commands. You want to love God? Love your brother. And honoring God is going to cost you. Um, you're going to be persecuted for trying to follow Christ, especially in this culture. I mean, even right back then, Abel did the right thing and he paid with his life. Um, Again, when you're converted, you pass from death into life. The old way of doing things is past. Your old self is dead. You have a new life in Christ. Your hate is supposed to turn to love and your new nature is to care for other believers. That should mark you if you're a believer. A lack of love... uh, constitutes continuation in spiritual death. And you notice John himself in that scripture actually uh, compares uh, 
those who lack love to murderers. So he's, he's pretty harsh there. Um, he's basically uh, talking about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, and 28, that it's not enough uh, to follow the do not murder command externally. There's an inward heart's desire to love the fellow believers. Um, hate is essentially equated with murder. Um, and no murderer inherits eternal life. And then you contrast that in uh, uh, verse 15 and uh, 16. You contrast verse 15 with verse 16, where uh, John says, We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So... John is citing a supreme example of love. Jesus laying down his life for us is an act of self-giving sacrifice. So we're being called to a pretty high standard there. And then if you think about it, you move on, you're, you're also getting some practical advice of how you can actually apply that in your own life. Um, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So John here is giving us some practical application on what he's just discussed in the last few verses. Now, it is possible, but maybe not likely, that everybody in this room and others who might hear hear this sermon will be called to lay down their lives for the saints. That may not happen. But more likely, you could have opportunity to practice self-sacrifice in areas such as material needs or help. And it's a blessing when, when God gives you the opportunity to do that, or if you're the actual recipient of it. And I was very fortunate to be the recipient of it about five years ago when I needed a new car. A Christian brother whom I knew had just purchased a new car, and he had his old car, and he wasn't ready to get rid of it. And I'm wondering what I'm going to do. I need a new car. And what he did for me is the living embodiment of this verse. He, um, he gave it to me, and he said, here, take it, free of charge. I didn't have to pay for it. You talk about God meeting your needs. That's a great example of 1 John 3.17. So again, we're to love not only in word but in deed. And love is not just a feeling, it's action. I think using the fruit that I've discussed would be great to use as prayer points for both ourselves as well as our larger church family. I think we all ought to strive you know, to not only increase our knowledge of doctrine, but also finding ways we can serve the body of Christ, continuing to pursue sanctification. I think all those things should be our prayer. If you're stuck on things to pray for, I've just given you three ideas that you can use on your prayer list tonight, tomorrow. So with that, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, close this in a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that the message I have brought tonight, the scriptures, would not just be a one-time thing, uh, that we hear them and we don't do anything about it. I pray that we would make the criteria we've looked at tonight, this criteria that constitutes genuine conversion, I pray that that would be our prayer. I pray that it would be Bethany Church's prayer. May all of the things we've looked at be true of us, and may we continue to pursue them and pursue them fervently. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.